For Constitution Day 2023 at South Georgia State College, this is an abridged audio narration of Putting the Bill of Rights to the Test by the National Archives. My name is Dr. Rick Ryman, and here I read the first six sections of this public domain document, which captures some of the controversies involving the freedom of the press, speech, assembly, petition, and the right of due process. The webpage containing the link to this audio recording also contains the link to the complete ebook Putting the Bill of Rights to the Test. Listeners are encouraged to download this document, which contains questions and primary sources, further illuminating the controversies discussed here. Section 1. Freedom of or Freedom from Religion For hundreds of years before even the passage of the Bill of Rights, individuals came to our shores seeking the opportunity to worship freely and without persecution. These ideals were solidified in the passage of the First Amendment. It defends an individual's right to worship, but also protects individuals from the government supporting a particular religion. Congress shall make no law, it says, respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. But what if these two issues come into conflict? How does the First Amendment find balance between the Establishment Clause and Free Exercise Clause? Background In a nationally televised event on Christmas Eve 1968, Apollo 8 astronauts Bill Anders, Jim Lovell, and Frank Borman read the first ten verses from the book of Genesis in the Bible. Feeling her First Amendment rights had been violated, American Atheists founder Madeleine Murray O'Hare filed suit against Thomas O. Paine, the administrator of NASA, and the Space Agency. O'Hare is best known for her role in Murray v. Curlett that was consolidated with Abington School District v. Shemp and led to the Supreme Court's 1963 ruling that school-sponsored Bible reading in public schools was unconstitutional. She believed that because the Apollo 8 crew read from the scripture, her rights were infringed upon as an atheist. O'Hare claimed that NASA, a federal agency, instructed the astronauts to read from the Bible, and this was a direct violation of separation of church and state. She further alleged that NASA was trying to establish Christianity as the official religion of the United States. As a taxpayer, O'Hare argued that federal funds which supported the space program should not be used to accommodate a Bible on board. She also claimed that the date of the Apollo 8 flight was chosen because of religious reasons. U.S. District Judge Jack Roberts dismissed the suit, writing that the complaint failed to state a cause of action for which relief could be granted. He argued that the plaintiffs were not coerced to watch the televised event, And if the astronauts had been forced to read from the Bible, then the personal rights of the astronauts would have been violated, not those of the plaintiffs. Roberts stated, carrying the Bible aboard the space capsule neither advanced nor inhibited religion, and therefore did not violate the Establishment Clause. Roberts concluded that the scheduling of the Apollo 8 flight to coincide with the Christmas season was, quote, approaching the absurd, End quote, 
and, quote, the First Amendment does not require the state to be hostile to religion, but only neutral, end of quotation. For further questions, primary sources, and transcript of the court case that resolved this First Amendment controversy, download Putting the Bill of Rights to the Test, a public domain publication of the National Archive on the National Archives website. Section 2. Freedom of Speech for the Masses Though freedom of speech is one of our most cherished liberties as protected by the First Amendment, fully enjoying it has not always been possible. This is especially true during times of stress for the nation and government. Background During World War I, the federal government passed the Espionage Act. Over 2,000 arrests and 1,000 convictions resulted from the passage of the Act and its later amendment commonly called the Sedition Act. The socialist magazine, The Masses, was dedicated to, quote, radical art and freedom of expression, end quote, and, quote, spirited expressions of every kind, in fiction, satire, poetry, and essay, end quote. For the August 1917 issue, the editors, artists, and writers crafted pieces that showed disapproval for the war. Draft resistors were praised in an editorial for their, quote, self-reliance and sacrifice, end quote. In an introduction to a series of letters from jailed British conscientious objectors, a writer asserted that people could be conscientious objectors without a religious cause. In addition, an article and a poem called Anarchists Alexander Berkman and Emma Goldman, recently jailed for speaking out against the draft, quote, friends of American freedom, end quote. These words were dangerous because of the recent passing of the Espionage Act in June 1917. This law made it illegal to make any statements that would interfere with the military operations, promote the success of the enemy, cause insubordination by soldiers, or obstruct the draft. The maximum sentence was 20 years in jail. The act also gave the post office the power to seize any controversial periodical that went through the mail as non-mailable. When the masses sent out its August issue, it was seized by New York City's postmaster, T.G. Patton, because the, quote, whole tone and tenor, end quote, violated the Espionage Act. In the only court case that supported freedom of the press during World War I, Judge Learned Hand agreed with the masses and said that the journal could be mailed. He supported their right to publish by saying, nothing within the journal directly advocated resistance to the law. The government appealed and eventually indicted seven staff members of the masses for espionage. After two hung juries and with the war already over, the government decided to stop prosecution in the case. Others were not as lucky, and you can see in the cases of Eugene Debs, William Haywood, Mojek Firon, and Anthony Stopa, among others. For further questions, primary sources, and transcript of the court case that resolved this First Amendment controversy, download Putting the Bill of Rights to the Test 
a public domain publication of the National Archive on the National Archives website. Section 3, Freedom to Cover the World Series Baseball and social change have been linked since Jackie Robinson broke the color line in 1947. Sports Illustrated reporter Melissa Ludke broke another line 30 years later when she sued Commissioner of Baseball Bowie Kuhn to gain access to the locker room. This gender line in the reporting of sports calls out First Amendment guaranteed freedom of the press and the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Background After rising through the ranks as a junior reporter, Melissa Ludke was assigned to cover the 1977 baseball playoffs and World Series. During the first two American League playoff games in New York, the Yankees refused to provide her the same access to the locker room as her male colleagues. Before the World Series started, Los Angeles Dodgers players voted to let Ludke into the clubhouse after games. But baseball commissioner Bowie Kuhn stepped in and reversed this decision. Lutke missed capturing the ballplayers' locker room stories and interviews. Game 6 had included perhaps one of the best individual performances in baseball history. During that game, Yankee star Reggie Jackson earned the nickname Mr. October by hitting three straight home runs on three straight pitches from three different pitchers, no less. The Yankees would win their first World Series in over a decade, but Ludke would not be allowed to interview Reggie or others about it in the locker room. When the 1978 baseball season approached, Ludke and Time Incorporated, the parent company of Sports Illustrated, filed suit against Bowie Kuhn, the New York Yankees, Mayor of New York City Abraham Beam, and other officials. In the complaint, they alleged discrimination on 14th Amendment grounds, since she was deprived of the, quote, opportunity to cover baseball in the same manner and to the same extent as her male colleagues and competitors, end quote. Her First Amendment rights were infringed, they alleged, when she was denied, quote, fair access to a source of news, end quote. In the judgment, the court ordered the New York Yankees to allow Melissa Ludke and all female accredited sports reporters access to the clubhouse locker rooms. Ludke's case opened baseball locker room doors to female reporters, growing at that time to about 50% of journalists. For further questions, primary sources, and transcript of the court case that resolved this First Amendment controversy, download Putting the Bill of Rights to the Test, a public domain publication of the National Archive on the National Archives website. Section 4. Freedom of the Press Under Stress Though freedom of the press was protected in the First Amendment, its application would be tested just a few years later when political parties developed in the mid-1790s. As politicians split into Federalists, such as Alexander Hamilton and John Adams, and Democratic Republicans, like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, newspapers sprouted up supporting the opinions of one side or the other. Background. Greenleaf's New Daily Advertiser, published by Anne Greenleaf, 
was one of the divisive papers that emerged when the early American political camps of the Federalists and Democratic Republicans formed. It frequently opposed the decisions of the party in power, the Federalists. Anne Greenleaf was one of 25 people, all expressing anti-Federalist opinions, who was arrested for violating the Sedition Act. This bill made it a crime, punishable by two years in jail and a $2,000 fine, to, quote, print, utter, or publish any false, scandalous, and malicious writing, end quote, against any part of the government. In the February 9, 1799 issue, Greenleaf published an article that questioned the constitutionality of the Alien and Sedition Acts. The article describes citizens of Flatbush, in what is now Brooklyn, New York, erecting liberty poles as they had done prior to the American Revolution to show displeasure toward the British. The cause of their current displeasure was the recent passing of what the paper called the, quote, tyrannical and unconstitutional alien and sedition bills, end quote. With the Sedition Act in place, Greenleaf was indicted for exciting the, quote, hatred of the good people of the United States, end quote, against Congress. She was also indicted for publishing an article the following August that asserted that pro-federalist newspapers were both employed in the service of the U.S. government and secret agents of the British government, quote, sent here to assist in demoralizing the political mind, end quote. The article based its assertion on the fact that these papers, like Noah Webster's American Minerva, were excessively pro-British and bitterly anti-French. In the end, Anne Greenleaf's case would never go to trial. Since she had sold her paper and was no longer in publishing, the U.S. Attorney for the New York District recommended to President John Adams that the government drop its case. Adams agreed. For further questions, primary sources, and transcript of the court case that resolved this First Amendment controversy, download Putting the Bill of Rights to the Test, a public domain publication of the National Archive on the National Archives website. Section 5. Permission to Take It to the Streets. The right of the people to peaceably assemble is guaranteed in the Bill of Rights, in the First Amendment to the Constitution. But what happens when a city requires a group to obtain a permit to do so? Background. The 1968 Democratic National Convention is associated in the minds of many with scenes of violent clashes between anti-war protesters and Chicago police officers. Yet the National Mobilization Committee to End the War in Vietnam's M-O-B-E, application for a permit, highlights the protesters' desire to abide by municipal, local government regulations while exercising their First Amendment rights. The application was an exhibit in Criminal Case 69, CR 180, United States v. Dellinger et al. The defendants, David Dellinger, Rennie Davis, Tom Hayden, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Lee Weiner, 
John Freund's and Bobby Seale were accused of inciting riots during the convention. On March the 20th, 1969, the grand jury returned indictments on these eight people on charges of conspiracy to travel in interstate commerce with the intent to incite a riot in violation of the Anti-Riot Act. Six of the defendants were indicted on individual charges. After a 13-month trial, Judge Hoffman sentenced Bobby Seale to four years in prison for contempt of court and declared a mistrial in the prosecution of Seale. For further questions, primary sources, and transcript of the court case that resolved this First Amendment controversy, download Putting the Bill of Rights to the Test, a public domain publication of the National Archive on the National Archives website. Section 5. A Seditious Petition The right to petition the government is protected by the First Amendment. Less than 10 years after its ratification, however, a New York state legislator was arrested for distributing a petition. His petition, addressed to the House and Senate, questioned recent government actions, stating that Congress had just deliberately passed a, quote, series of evils, end quote, that would lead to a, quote, foreign war, a violated constitution, and a divided people, end quote. Background. Revolutionary War veteran Jedediah Peck served as judge for a New York state court and was elected to the New York state legislature as a Federalist. He, however, disagreed with the Federalists' passage of the Alien and Sedition Acts that increased the requirements for citizenship and limited freedom of expression, respectively. So, in April 1799, he asserted his First Amendment right to, quote, petition the government for a redress of grievances, end quote. For distributing this petition, and the specific language that it used, Jedediah Peck, an elected representative, was one of 25 people arrested for violating the Sedition Act. Affidavits from witnesses described him carrying a six-inch stack of handbills with him and telling others that Congress was threatening the liberties of the United States. The indictment also describes the language of the petition to the House and Senate as containing, quote, false, scandalous, and malicious writings, end quote. Among other claims, Peck was arrested for attacking the Alien and Sedition Acts and saying they were, quote, obnoxious to a generous and free people, end quote, and so wicked that they'd, quote, convert free men into slaves, unquote. Jedediah Peck was arrested and subject to two years in jail and a $2,000 fine. He never went to trial, however, since the U.S. attorney, after reaching out to the Secretary of State and President Adams himself, decided not to pursue the case. For Jedediah Peck, his controversial statements helped gain him support. He was re-elected to the New York State Legislature. Today, he is credited by some as the father of the New York public education system. For further questions, primary sources, and transcript of the court case that resolved this First Amendment controversy, download Putting the Bill of Rights to the Test, a public domain publication of the National Archive on the National Archives website. Section 6. Suspending the Right of Due Process 
Japanese-American Relocation During World War II Following the Pearl Harbor bombing, in reaction to growing hysteria along the Pacific coast from Alaska to Southern California and in Hawaii, families of Japanese ancestry were sent to hastily built relocation camps further inland. These individuals were denied the constitutional right to due process through the courts because of perceived danger. The Fifth Amendment states, No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on presentment or indictment of a grand jury except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when in actual service in time of war or public danger, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Background These persons of Japanese ancestry had committed no crimes, Almost two-thirds of them were American citizens. This included thousands of small children. Because of the perception of public danger, all Japanese within varied distances from the Pacific coast were targeted. Unless they were able to dispose of or make arrangements for care of their property within a few days, their homes, farms, businesses, and most of their private belongings were lost forever. First, they were sent to, quote, assembly centers, end quote, often racetracks or fairgrounds, where they waited and were tagged to indicate the location of a long-term, quote, relocation center, end quote, that would be their home for the rest of the war. Then they were sent by train or bus to their assigned centers, which were often far from their homes, perhaps in different climates with harsh conditions. They were housed in army-style barracks, usually shared with several other families. Most lived in these conditions for nearly three years, sometimes more. Gradually, some insulation was added to the barracks, and lightweight partitions were added to make them a little more comfortable and somewhat private. During this period, three Japanese-American citizens were involved in legal actions in protest of this policy. Gordon Hirabayashi, Fred Korematsu, and Mitsuye Endo. Hirabayashi and Korematsu received negative judgments, but Mitsuye Endo, after a lengthy battle through lesser courts, was allowed to leave the Topaz, Utah facility. Justice Frank Murphy of the Supreme Court expressed the following opinion. I join in the opinion of the court, but I am of the view that detention in relocation centers of persons of Japanese ancestry, regardless of loyalty, is not only unauthorized by Congress or the executive, but is another example of the unconstitutional resort to racism inherent in the entire evacuation program. As stated more fully in my dissenting opinion in Fred Tuasaboro Korematsu versus United States, 
Racial discrimination of this nature bears no reasonable relation to military necessity and is utterly foreign to the ideals and traditions of the American people. End quote. As World War II drew to a close, the relocation centers were slowly evacuated. Some persons of Japanese ancestry returned to their hometowns, and others moved elsewhere. In 1988, President Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act, awarding compensation and issuing a formal apology for the U.S. military action affecting over 100,000 Japanese-American civilians during World War II. For further questions, primary sources, and transcript of the court case that resolved this First Amendment controversy, download Putting the Bill of Rights to the Test, a public domain publication of the National Archive on the National Archive's website. Thanks for listening.